Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. This episode features Antoine Bousquet and Jairus Grove, two of the most fascinating thinkers in international relations and critical security studies today. I'm delighted to have Antoine and Jairus on the podcast because their work has been deeply influential on my own thinking about drones, war, and the wider catastrophe in which we find ourselves. Antoine is Reader in International Relations at Birkbeck College, University of London. He's the author of The Eye of War, Military Perception from the Telescope to the Drone, which is a deeply researched and carefully argued exploration of what Antoine calls the martial gaze. Jairus is Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Hawaii Research Centre for Future Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He's the author of Savage Ecology, War and Geopolitics at the End of the World, one of the most startling and unsettling works of political theory of recent times, and a book that has helped me think through how to understand where we're at in geopolitics and the life of war. You're going to hear a live dialogue from Jairus and Antoine shortly, but first the pair of them joined me for a brief conversation. Antoine Bousquet, Jairus Grove, welcome. Let's begin at the beginning. What brought each of you to study war? Antoine, let's start with you. So I didn't grow up, uh, you know, I wasn't a kid that was fascinated by weapons or, or war as I grew up. Um, it was really an encounter, I think, uh, at um, university made me, I mean, I became very aware at that point that I had some interest certainly in, in the role and the role of technology in society, but it struck me that in war, war magnified uh, these things as it does so many other things and that that if you want to understand uh, the ways our societies are being governed and are being transformed or mediated through technology war provides a quite unique prism to look at it and the more I've studied the matter kind of the more I've been sucked into it I suppose so it's, it's a, yeah this is a kind of an incidental event like many things in life that led me to where we are now. Jairus? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I was sort of obsessed with all things war growing up uh, and then quite disgusted with them and, and sort of walked away from it. Uh, I remember I actually I walked into Jane Bennett's office when I was a graduate student and I had I had written two dissertation proposals. Um, one was on human animal relations and, and technological relations in art and trying to theorize the interface. Um, of using machines to, to mediate question of creativity. And the other one was how to write exactly the same question in the context of war and, war and creativity. Uh, and I said, which one should I write? And she said, well, I think you should write the war one because you'll definitely get a job. It's funny, but I, I mean, I was committed to writing both of them. Um, and, you know, there are times in which, like, I wish I had written the one on art because the war one came a little weird. But you know, there were two, like, very significant events. I mean, there's probably been a lot, but you know, when I was living in Baltimore, uh, two things happened uh, that were, were pretty jaw-dropping. One, which was that the predominantly African-American neighborhood that I lived in, uh, I was coming back with a friend 
we were buying beer actually at the grocery store. Uh, and they were they were testing drones through the African American neighborhoods because they thought that they kind of had a right to. They were running flight paths and bombing paths, and it was actually it was terrifying, uh, flying them incredibly low, much lower than they're allowed to. Um, and the second was um, just the entire effort to 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 make the the war on drugs a literal war in Baltimore. Um, it was called Project Coumadin. Uh, right, because that's a blood thinner, and they were going after the Bloods, who are a notorious gang in Baltimore. Um, but the the brag was that they were using counterinsurgency techniques that they were learning from the Israelis uh, and from New York, as if those were sort of interchangeable units. Um, and I, I kind of feel like now I live in the world's largest military infrastructure, probably without a doubt, uh, on an island that was taken by force, um, taken illegally, in which sovereignty has not been relinquished by the Hawaiians. And Every time I sort of think I might start to work on something else, I, the other thing that I work on becomes war too. And, and I, I don't think that's just because I, I can't get war off my mind. I think it's because war is at the heart of things. And unfortunately for most of political science, war is sort of the very last question people are willing to engage in. And so, I don't know, it keeps pulling me back. You know, just when I think I'm done with it, there's a fake nuclear strike at my home and I think, wow, I've better figure out what that means. In the talk that folks are going to hear shortly, your focus of, of conversation is on the concept of autonomy in war and its relation to the emergence of lethal autonomous weapons and drones and so on. Um, but autonomous weapons aren't really the research focus or the major research focus for either of you. And so um, I kind of wanted to give you a chance to, to tell people about um, your research more broadly, a, a brief kind of picture of it. And so, Jeris, um, you know, your book is called Savage Ecology, and uh, I think maybe that's a really nice place to start, like to, to tell us a little bit about what you mean by savage ecology and, and how that sort of shapes um, uh, your research more broadly. The inspiration for the book uh, was actually Levi-Strauss. It was this uh, savage mind. But um, like Levi-Strauss's point, the savagery of the book is, is about the Western geopolitics politics, which attempted to terraform the entirety of the planet uh, to make it a kind of user space, in the words of Peter Sloterdijk, that would allow for the free functioning of, of, of statecraft. Um, so for me, this wasn't a story of proto-capitalism and capitalism. It was a study of, of warfare uh, and using war as a way of, of making a, a, a vast planetary ecological system um, so, you know, it was an effort to both expand the concept of war, which was being shrunk down, I thought, increasingly by our field. I'm not really working on that anymore, but it's all war stuff too. I'm basically working on brains and torture and Antoine and I are slowly writing a book on nuclear reason. Um, but I suppose it's all related at some level. Um, Antoine, um, it seems that your research um, has been um, quite focused both in your first book on, um, on the scientific way of war and in your more recent book on, on the techniques and governing logics of, of warfare. Um, and so your concept of the martial gaze is, I think, particularly valuable for people uh, working in drone studies. And so can you describe um, your work for, for anyone who might be new to it? And um, if you can, a, a, a distilled version of, of the martial gaze as a concept? So, uh, yes, years ago, I, I wrote the first book, which was, was originally a PhD, uh, on the scientific way of warfare, which is a way I tried to grapple with different ways in which militaries have thought about organization through the prism of contemporaneous scientific ideas. 
And when I finished that, I uh, he was looking for a kind of a new project, and and I was driven towards the 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 role of military perception, and in particular, the question of you know how we got to the kind of point we seem to have reached now, which is pretty much that anything that's perceptible across the globe in the kind of global battle space can be targeted. Uh, you know how that capability came to arise uh, in the first place. But, you know, if you're looking at drones, I think it's really interesting to kind of push the idea back. How far back can you go? What are the all the antecedents of this? And so for the martial gaze, uh, or for tracking what I call a martial gaze, um, I went back to uh, the, the, the early Renaissance and, and the birth of linear perspective to look at the kind of conjoining of a rationalization uh, of vision and a mathematization of space and to kind of trace that particularly in its martial context up, up to the present day, uh, to understand precisely how we've got to the point that we we're at, to think about the changing role of, of the human within that, and to reflect on the implications for, for conflict more generally. And relating to the question of autonomy, you know, it, it, the autonomy was not the kind of starting point of, of, of the research, but in many, in many ways, the story that kind of ends up being told is one of a martial gaze uh, as a kind of set of uh, capabilities, technologies, rationalities that uh, become pro progressively disembedded from the human organism and acquire some uh, degree uh, of, of autonomy, um, or at least uh, that functions uh, as a kind of global uh, as a global system. Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, it's one of the things that um, strikes me that's interesting about the the two of you, and particularly the prospect of, of the two of you working um, together on this uh, nuclear project, um, is that you know, Antoine, your as you said, your 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 work is really interested in this long long historical tale, um, and uh, you both. I think would describe yourselves as um, empiricists, but then you know, Jaris, um, you know, your book um, has a long historical tale too, in the sense of you know your concept of the Eurocene and uh, to um, European dom dominance of the globe as as the kind of logic for the for the era that we're in now. But your work also strikes me as very kind of expansive um, and and speculative um, in 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 a number of ways, as well as um, being uh, connected deeply into the empirical. So it'll be exciting to see where that takes the two of you together. Can you say, can either of you say a little bit more about um, about where this nuclear work is going? I'll first say a few things. Maybe Joe's going to talk about the nuclear project, perhaps. I'll say a few things about, you know, our co collaboration, which is, yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap in our interests. Uh, I think we immediately kind of recognise in each other's work very early on, maybe it was almost 10 years ago, that we were really writing on, with a similar kind of interest in war, which is to say a kind of deep fascination with the with the phenomena and one that was guided primarily by you know a desire to understand over and above kind of exerting some kind of normative judgment on it or to be interested in a kind of instrumental appropriate appropriation of it so i think there's this you know there's a lot of things that we basically share in common but i also think we have kind of nice complementarities i, I think you know jerry's is a more savage thinker uh, kind of more wildly speculative which which i'm uh, you know deeply admire in, in his work uh, kind of, I perhaps I'm kind of a more painstaking empiricist, but which I think makes for a nice combination because we kind of balance each other out. But I'll take this opportunity to also, you know, uh, highlight the importance of our work with Nisha Shah, uh, who's based in Ottawa, and over the last five years or so through special issue on becoming weapon and, uh, and on becoming war, you know, we've we've put a lot of work together to kind of elaborate what we've 
ultimately called martial empiricism. Um, and I think that's kind of shaped the work of the three of us. And, and you know, she definitely needs to be included in this conversation. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, I, it's funny. I don't even really know how all three of us found each other. Because honestly, the first time that Enfron and I met, it was kind of brief. Uh, and I didn't really know if we'd speak again. I was like in the place where they had some food at the Millennium event. Um, and then I met Nisha through James Darian. I don't remember when Nisha and Antoine first met. And then it just sort of spiraled wildly out of control. And it was great. Um, and I, I think we all have very different ways in which we approach the question. I mean, Nisha in particular, has a really good sense of how to keep the normative at the forefront without becoming moralistic. So despite, I think both Antoine and I are both a bit uh, like allergic to moralization uh, and yet she's able to come at the way the normative becomes embedded in forms of design, uh, whether or not it's the caliber of the bullet or the arrangement of battle spaces or, um, the notion of the fortress or the wall, you know, both Antoine and Nisha are good at keeping me honest because I, I'm perfectly happy to talk about war in a thousand years from now and, and, you know, have only the barest of empirical bases and still think it's radical empiricism. But I also think, you know, to segue quickly to the nuclear project, I mean, one of the things that sort of drew Antoine and I together to work on, on the nuclear project was precisely that, you know, Antoine has this just like remarkable ability to, to understand these systems sort of inside and out. And my hope was uh, that th that and, you know, his curiosity and interest in sort of philosophical chops, we could really try to think about what the totally perverse but consistent form of reason was that emerged out of this first generation of uh, nuclear strategists and also the people who actually made the weapons. And there was actually a great deal of overlap there, which is, I think, fascinating. And so, you know, I think we're both drawn to trying to understand systems from the inside before we, you know, say no more nukes, which I think we'd both be happy to see a world with, with no nuclear weapons, but um, it wouldn't tell us very much about how a generation of science, weird politician strategists could come to think that uh, beginning and ending the human race or potentially spawning other intelligent races was something that they would have the right or the capability to do. And so I think that's the other thing, which is that all three of us have always taken war serious as a philosophical enterprise, which I think a lot of people are a bit hesitant to do. So I think the, the nuclear project is really following that um, to, the, to the claim of martial empiricism down to the brass tacks of the ICBM. Is one of the interesting things about drone studies um, as an interdisciplinary field um, is the sheer breadth of perspectives and methodologies. So I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit about the kinds of research methods that each of you bring to bear. And perhaps um, since it's come up in the conversation already, you might say some, one of you might say something about martial empiricism as a, as a research practice. Well, I think both Jairus and I, you know, are very kind of I prefer the term transdisciplinary rather than interdisciplinary Me too. Uh, in the sense that we, we have no, we're not interested in disciplinary boundaries and rather than trying to sh forge conversations. Um, so, you know, neither of us, I think, are deeply wedded to the idea of international relations, which is kind of our home discipline. 
Um, so, you know, we, we, we kind of, I think, have a, an, an idea that, that we use the tools that I think work for us and thinking about war or, or about anything for that matter uh, shouldn't be bounded necessarily by, by the confines of, of any kind of disciplinary outlook. And it, indeed, I think increasingly engaging in the world really is, is, cannot be done on a satisfactory basis through some of these prisms. Um, so, I mean, partly that's the kind of impetus behind kind of something like martial empiricism. And both our work, I think, is, you know, been fortunate enough to be able to, to engage with people outside of our, outside of our discipline because, the, because I think the subject matter is, is of interest beyond it. And, and martial empiricism is really, a, a, again, an idea that we should approach the world in terms of uh, an encounter with it, you know, that it is uh, something in the world that, that makes us think so that whenever we kind of encounter that world and we we want to produce some understanding or or derive some knowledge from it then we need to form kind of an assemblage with it Uh, we need to to create an empirical we need to define an empirical field and methodologically i mean i'm a i'm a terrible kind of methods person in the sense that I, i don't really believe in kind of methods training as as it's normally imparted at the university um, I, I feel that you know you, you need to develop the the concepts and the, the the methods that that any particular field requires you to, and that's not something you know in advance. That's something you you hone as you kind of encounter the material. And this is the way I've you know written my two books, which was just read as much as I could about a particular subject matter let it percolate and and event you know you come with certain intuitions certain philosophical dispositions but not i would say methods per se that seems to be to me a, a, a post facto rationalization of, w- of what you you've done first you need to kind of inhabit the material really get to know it well and then start drawing the connections and and, and the kinds of frameworks that allow you to to make sense of it it's kind of a it can be quite you know a daunting process to do and i understand why in PhD, postgraduate training programs, we don't tell students that. But I think that's actually the reality of how most people end up doing their research. Yeah, I mean, I I think I come to it from a similar position. I mean, I think one of the things that actually drew Antoine and Nish and I together from the very beginning was that none of us were particularly committed to IR as an enterprise. We were interested in in a set of questions that that happened to find a home in IR. I mean, I so I think methodologically, like if, if what we mean by a method is how we do our research, then I've got lots of answers. If, if we mean methodology as a, a sort of the, the constraints for how we think knowledge can be accessed and what knowledge can be used and how we get it. Um, I think knowledge is fundamentally sensual. It's not um, extracted somehow um, from cognition. And I, I think, you know, lately I've been trying to put that to practice in very literal ways, thinking about, you know, we're in the middle of some war games right now, but things have been pretty tense on the island for for a couple of years, you know, thinking about the effect it has that, you know, my kids tense up when uh, ospreys fly over, Um, you know, we, today was the first, which meant today was the day uh, that they heard the the nuclear uh, siren go off to make sure that it worked. you know, we, we live just down the street from the most expensive nuclear or military platform ever, um, one of the fad giant bubble domes. Um, 
so thinking about that kind of lived experience of war has been really important to me lately. And then futures has dragged me weirdly into more war-related contexts than I ever expected. You know, Antoine used to be the one of the three of us that like would get invited to military uh, events. And I always was, thought that was super weird. And then I started getting invited to a ton of them too. And actually I have a meeting with Pacific Command later this week. And so strangely also, I think you, you find yourself in these places where you, if, if you didn't take the opportunity to try to figure out what they were, um, kind of when you got thrown into them, right? If you came to them with a particular way of doing research, you'd miss a lot of what I think is probably most interesting and most important. Um, and you know, that's, it's messy. Um, and you have to do a lot of work to disentangle it when it's done. Um, but I would, I would rather sort of find my way to things like ethnography or media studies um, than sort of decide in advance that that's how I'd like to approach the world. And now, here's Antoine Bousquet and Jeris Grove with their talk, Martial Autonomies, Rise of the War Machines. Antoine is up first. I guess I'll start with a few kind of preliminary thoughts uh, on the question of drones and autonomy. And the first thing, and I think it's important to get this out of the way, even though maybe at this point it's become obvious to most, uh, is that you know we, we have to be careful when we talk about drones to not uh, become kind of uh, fetishistic about the object. Uh, there's already, I think, a, a long history of unmanned aerial vehicles that shows that although these objects have come really to public attention and to even scholarly attention in the last 10, 15 years, really, uh, they, go, they reach all the way back from the very beginnings of uh, air power. Uh, and similarly, I think it's very important to underline that really the drone is, is a concatenation of technologies, it's not a s fixed uh, object in itself. Uh, and we, sh we need to be very attentive to these wider technologies, the histories of these technologies, the networks in which the drone as an object is embedded in. And I think that's kind of important to just lay that out there because I think once we start framing things in this way, uh, we get to, I think, more essential considerations about uh, where this, these technologies might, might be heading. And particularly, of course, today we're talking about uh, this question of autonomy, which is very much tied to debates about artificial intelligence or lethal autonomous weapon systems, as um, we found in the debates. The first thing I would do, I guess, would be to make something like a, a deflationist move. And first thing would be to say that on one level, autonomous weapon systems are not uh, future devices. They already exist. They were already deployed in certain restricted contexts. So we find them in anti-aerial defenses um, or as sentry guns. And this really goes back to the late 70s and 80s. We can find some of these systems. And you know, while there's a lot of heat around the idea of lethal autonomous weapon systems, uh, here we're talking about systems that are no doubt fallible, but operate in relatively simple uh, environments in which the presence of uh, non-belligerence is generally unlikely. So these systems might not uh, destroy enemy targets, uh, but, but the, the risk of so-called collateral damage is, is limited. And effectively we're in spaces where um, these machines, the automation of these systems becomes often a kind of operational necessity. When we, what we really are talking about most of the time, when we think about lethal autonomous systems, they're about systems uh, whose artificial intelligence would allow it to make complex decisions, uh, discriminations about targets, 
um, and the ability to identify targets in, in, in a crowded in crowded battle spaces where there might be many illegitimate targets as well. And here, I think the claims often we have to be wary of is that really there's a lot of AI boosterism, that, that if you look at the history of AI, military and otherwise, and you think about the operate the, the kind of problems that these AIs would have to solve in these types of uh, environments, if you're asking these systems to discriminate, to conform to laws of war, uh, really you're asking for quite considerable advances in, on the current AI, whether it's in the realm of computer vision or, or synthetic reasoning. Um, and we should have a degree of skepticism to the extent to which this AI is around the corner uh, in any meaningful sense. I'll make a, a point here as well that we should note that the real challenge here is discrimination. Right, we already know how to indiscriminately target on a massive scale. If, we didn't, if, if militaries did not care about um, uh, copper bombing places or mass, mass indiscriminate targeting, uh, the problem of AI would be a pretty fairly straightforward and simple one. Uh, or you maybe wouldn't even need AI uh, in the first place. So I think it's, it's important to note that, that this is a, a big part of uh, the operational context for these technologies. So for all these reasons, you know, militaries are on the whole not exceedingly keen to forego human control if the technology is still uh, error prone. Uh, there are major problems, of course, for militaries themselves, for institutions with the militaries and, and for, for the people who send militaries out in deploying autonomous weapon systems. The major problems are really surrounding issues of accountability. If things go wrong, who is responsible? Um, and my sense is actually part of the problem we have or the, the danger we have in focusing on lethal autonomous weapon systems is that in many ways we might be missing what is the more immediate uh, challenge and, and danger which is to say i think humans are likely to stay on the loop for quite a long time that both for practical but also uh, for political and institutional reasons militaries will want to have humans involved in the process at some level or another authorizing the use of, of weapon systems. But what, we'll, what is happening and what will continue to happen is that these individuals are becoming ever more tightly embedded within the socio-technical assemblage of the weapon. And this, I think, is really the nub of the issue, that when we think about these systems, when we think about the ways in which humans are embedded in wider uh, uh, meshworks of technologies, of cybernetic control systems, and so forth, and in, in artificial intelligence, we find it ever more difficult to identify the locus of agency in these systems, certainly at a kind of functional level. At a legal level, it may be very practical uh, for institutions to say, well, here's the human, if something went wrong, here's the human decision maker that we can blame. But effectively, of course, if human decision makers within uh, military systems are increasingly finding that the operational environment is being mediated, oriented, uh, and informed by AI, uh, then it becomes much more difficult to legitimately see a human decision maker as a kind of sovereign decision maker involved in that process. And so I'd be tempted to say that actually the question of autonomy is perhaps the, the wrong question for us to ask, or at least that we really need to think carefully about what we mean by autonomy. Because when we think about the ways that it strikes me that when we talk about autonomy in the context of, of uh, military systems and machines, is that our conception of machine autonomy seems to be effectively modeled on our, our understanding of human autonomy. This is a quite an anthropomorphic conceit that we should think that machines 
should the, the, the idea of an autonomous machine must be somehow equivalent to what we think is an autonomous uh, human. And uh, I, we, I think we've got time to revisit that as well. I think Jared may say some things about that, but I, I think there's no necessary reason to think that the, our machines, and as they are evolving, will develop uh, human forms of deliberation and, and cognitive decision-making. So I think there's a first problem here in, in mapping human conceptions of autonomy onto uh, machines in a straightforward fashion. But there's a, this raises, I think, a secondary issue, uh, perhaps even more fundamental issue, which is that perhaps this conception of human autonomy is flawed as regards humans as well. You know, there's been work in, in, in philosophy in 15, 20 years, or even further back, if you, if you take to look to its roots, that really makes the argument that human uh, cognition is not a process that happens only within the confines of our bodies, uh, that we really are extended selves, that all cognition, and this is one of the chief characteristics of, or at least what that, that humans have developed most uh, intensively, is that cognition is something that takes place in interaction with our environment. And think very at the very basic level about the activity of writing, which is an externalization of, th of thought uh, onto the material world, um, you know, of making sums on paper or drawing on the sand. These are very basic cognitive tasks, but they do not simply happen in our head. They happen in, in, in conversation or in, uh, in engagement with our environment. And here, the work of people like Andy Clark or uh, Edwin Hutchins, I think, is, is very important for us. And it is, I think, more broadly, a testament to the unique plasticity of the human species, that we have developed this interaction, this development of our beings in constant dialogue, in constant engagement with our environment. The, the late Bernard Stiegler made the point that the anthropogenesis is deeply intertwined with technogenesis. I think we want to think about the trajectory of uh, human evolution and of our technical evolution. We have to be mindful of this, that, that the cognitive processes at the heart of our societies and our own sense of being are not things that are uh, confined to uh, a, a human um, a body or mind. Now, current technologies are really an extension of this. Uh, so we, I talked about very early types of technologies. A further, the technologies that are, uh, that are appearing now are a further extension of this process of combined anthropogenesis and, and technogenesis. Now, that's not to say that nothing has changed. I think the, the, the ties, the deepening of these interactions is ever greater. The environment through the kind of development of cybernetic systems we, are, we have environments that are you know, not simply uh, reflecting mutely what we impress on them, but are themselves processing and sending information back that we didn't necessarily put into it. Um, but this, I think, you know, means that when we think about uh, our you know, human autonomy, autonomy is it's never been something that was a, a, a pristine quality of human beings. It is not in itself a discrete quality that beings either possess or not. You are either autonomous or you are not. It's always been a contingent, situated, graduated, emergent property. Or to think in other words, agency is always something that is assembled, assembled from, from the world, from the fabric of uh, society. And it's capaciously as we can understand the, the idea of society or, or collectives. And so the same is very true of the AIs we are setting loose in the world. Uh, they will also evolve and, and gain forms of autonomy in relationship to the, the world in which they're, they're set in, the wider networks of connections that they make. 
So I think we may want to, and I'll, I'll conclude on this for the moment, we, we may want to think preferably in terms of autonomies, not a, a quality of autonomy, but a, a field of autonomies that will coalesce from the entanglement of humans and machines. And that, I think, raises a whole set of complicated analytical questions, but I think it gets us closer to the heart of the matter and thinking in kind of binary, absolutist terms about this idea of autonomy. And now, over to Jairus Grove. So I think, you know, there's there's a great deal of overlap, I think, where Antoine and I's thinking has converged on drones. So I'm going to try to boil it down uh, and overlap as little as possible, but come back to some of the, the central points. So there's sort of four sort of main areas, uh, I think, which are also in some sense a deflationary move. Um, but like Antoine's point, uh, the deflationary move is not necessarily good news. Um, so I think that's one of the things that often that these debates happen over a sort of autonomy versus automation. Uh, what kinds of limits, you know, can we have ethical software? Um, the skepticism tends to be on the side of, oh, well, these systems can't work, so we're fine. Uh, or these systems can really do these amazing transformative things, so we're fine. Uh, and I think, um, I think Antoine's point and, and my point coming soon is something like, well, they may not work at all like we think they are, and that's not necessarily good or bad news. It's a radically different way of thinking about what machines can do to warfare and the political. Um, so I've got sort of four core areas uh, I'll introduce quickly and then go through. And then I want to do a little bit of, of painting a picture of where I think transformations could take place and what the drivers for those transformations would be. Um, so the first one, which I think you know Antoine touched on at the beginning, which is something like drone essentialism. Um, we have a, a tendency um, to, to want to think about the drone as a thing, um, right? We want to think about it as, you know, fundamentally a predator drone or, uh, you know, one of the quadcopters that we see constantly at the beach. Um, but the reality is that the drone's only interesting, not because it's a thing, but precisely because of what it can be plugged into. Uh, and Antoine gave lots of great examples of the ways in which it, it really doesn't even make sense as an object without, you know, the vast network of satellites that we have, uh, the ability to have telecommunications in real time. Um, what are, for me, the most interesting, uh, which is that what, what's really become more sophisticated with drones is, is their sensory capabilities. Um, but if we're going to try to unpack drone essentialism, uh, I want to go a little bit further and, and I'll come back to that because I want you to sort of think about all of these together. Um, the second major area um, is this idea of autonomy versus automation uh, and getting past the idea that these are in some sense opposed terms or even dialectical terms. Uh, I think the more that we come to understand how human cognition works, the more that we understand that autonomy and automation are actually mutually dependent upon one another. Uh, and I'll get back to some of the points that, um, that Antoine raised about, um, about agency and where, where that comes in. Uh, number three, uh, which I'll spend some time on too, um, intelligence, uh, why intelligence is at the center of this. And I think this gets to the question of the sort of human and the sort of anthropocentric uh, nature of our research, um, but also the anthropomorphic expectations we have of the future. And the fourth, uh, which I'll definitely spend some time on when I talk about the future, um, is, is what I would like to call the, the functionalist fallacy. Um, which is often at play amongst futurists who I spend a lot of time with, which is that um, things will be used if they work. Um, what we don't spend a lot of time thinking about is failure and what things do when they don't work. All right, so I wanna start with drone essentialism 
uh, and maybe introduce some ideas that could change our expectations of the future and also think differently about drones. Um, the first drone that I wanna talk about, uh, which doesn't get a lot of airplay these days are landmines. Um, landmines are one of the most highly distributed drones in the world. Uh, and what I mean by drone is they're, they're a weapon in waiting. Uh, in some cases, uh, just again recently, uh, a Confederate US uh, landmine was discovered um, in the South uh, and it was still explosive. It was waiting uh, in some sense um, to have a kind of sensory experience, right? Um, now the sensory experience in this case, thankfully it was so deep that no one was able to set it off. Um, but when they go off in places like Cambodia or uh, in Vietnam uh, or in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's because something agitated them. They had the capacity to feel, right? So they're tactile drones. Um, if we look at, think about the ways in which the improvised explosive device has changed over the last decade, right? Going from being in some sense, just uh, either radio controlled or wire controlled landmines uh, to now being aerial drones, right? Uh, so we have uh, in many cases, uh, instances in which sort of suicide drones, which functionally are just landmines that can fly. Um, so I, I want I want to keep that there because really what then happens is not this sort of sensory change, right? We have, we have an incredibly long history of weapons that have a certain sensory capability, right? They can decide to go off or not go off based on the presence of a particular kind of network uh, or encounter. Um, but there is, a, there is a kind of obsession with the flying drone because we have an obsession with mobility. Uh, and, I, and I think that actually um, is, is somewhat misleading and, and not terribly helpful. Um, the second uh, drone that, that somehow falls out of the picture entirely because we don't have the same sense of intelligence, although it could become quite intelligent, um, which we should get out of if we want to get out of drone essentialism, is, is nuclear weapons. Right? Incredible sophistication in targeting um, the ability to retarget in many cases, um, to be in constant communication with those that fire them, uh, to have capacities to overcome or even deploy countermeasures, uh, depending upon the kind of encounters they make, uh, and the renaissance that we're having right now uh, in, in nuclear weapons, even as we traditionally understand them, right? As we understand them uh, for, for instance, uh, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles, but already debates about whether or not uh, Russia has developed the capacity for um, what amount to nuclear drones, right? Um, deep submersible uh, warheads, um, which can stay underwater indefinitely because they don't have crews. Uh, and an era in which we could quite imagine um, submarines with nuclear capability and uh, never having the need uh, to come above water, right? Does that fit the kind of model we have the drone? I don't think so, but those are the kinds of drones which I think could really um, alter or change. And the last one's kind of wacky, but I want to think about it, um, which is there's, there's a kind of cousin to the drone that we often don't think about, which is the way that animals were used um, consistently in warfare, uh, in many cases, even to deploy weapons. Um, we know for sure uh, that there's a very advanced marine mammal program, both in Russia and the United States, as well as some smaller programs in Iran. Uh, in fact, the marine mammal program uh, in, the, in the US is, is, is housed mostly in Hawaii. Um, and what was so attractive to using seals and dolphins uh, and even some small whales was precisely their capacity for autonomy, um, that they had decision-making capabilities, that their training could become improvised. Uh, and there are even some rumors that at some 
of the most crazy uh, nuclear scenarios uh, that people thought about mounting small warheads uh, to larger whales who would deliver them without being able to be picked up uh, by sensors. Um, so what does it mean to get out of, I think, the sort of sleek notion um, of the predator drone and think more about this wider array, not just the network it lives in, but the kinds of everyday drones which have become quite normalized as components of war, but have precisely changed the temporality uh, and in some sense, the human character of war. If we think about human uh, and humanity as a, as a timescale, right? So landmines that can live for decades, uh, even a hundred years, um, animals that may function on different scales uh, and weapons that may lie in wait um, even accidentally, um, which could alter the course of warfare. Part two, autonomy versus automation. Um, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but I do wanna think, you know, I was really provoked by Catherine uh, Malibu's uh, latest book on AI. And, um, you know, given the work she'd been do doing on neuroplasticity uh, and been quite critical of cybernetics, she makes a bit of a turn and, and really takes seriously that cybernetics was on to some very interesting things when it came to understanding not just the nature of, of human cognition, but just the problem of cognition. Uh, and that what, what's obviously clear is, is how dependent even our most enlightenment notions of freedom are on a vast autonomic system, which if it were not completely automated, we couldn't think at all, right? If we had to remind ourselves to breathe, um, if we had to think or cogitate when deciding whether or not to dodge out of the way of a car, uh, if, if we had to, in some sense, coordinate um, what Immanuel Kant called the spontaneous accord of the faculties, right? The fact that they all get along, communicate, and make sense, there would be no thought and freedom in the first place, uh, which is another way of saying, and this is Malibu's point, um, if humans were not almost entirely automated, autonomy would be entirely impossible. Um, so trying to get out of the sense that, uh, that something is autonomous or uh, is automated and thinking instead about nested levels of autonomy and automation and what that makes possible. Um, I think that's particularly important for thinking about the future of drones uh, because we, we tend to think that drones will make this sort of step change uh, when something like a fully formed AI gets implanted into a highly capable machine instead of thinking about the ways in which an incredibly sophisticated set of sensory capabilities reaction capabilities. So for instance, drones can fly themselves through storms, take off and land, um, process data, potentially go silent um, when they could be targeted by uh, different kinds of weapons. Um, that it's actually the interplay of those autonomous capabilities or rather those automated capabilities that make me something emergent like autonomy possible. Um, part three, intelligence. Um, I think this is another area of not just drone essentialism, but AI essentialism, which is really unhelpful. Uh, and it's exactly what, what Antoine said, which is it's this sort of inherited notion, not of actual human intelligence, but our self sort of sense of what our intelligence is, uh, which I think actually has more to do with the reason why we've had an AI sort of long winter uh, than the technical challenges. It's that we're actually looking for the long, wrong thing. And so I wanna add two different possibilities, which would alter the way that we might think about drone development. The first one is, why aren't we talking about modeling desire? Um, desire is also incredibly complex, hard to understand. If we're Freudians, we want to think about desire and its relationship to drive. If we're Lacanians, we want to think about the way that a lack produces this almost exuberant attempt to fill in what isn't present. 
Uh, for Deleuzians or Bataillons, and we want to think about desire as these sort of explosive or productive forces uh, in which expenditure is actually uh, the thing which not only is desired, but uh, produces, in some sense, limited moments of rest from, uh, in, in some cases, a, a kind of um, subordination by, by desire. Uh, imagine those things, those different models of how we understand what makes us want things uh, being modeled into machines. Um, it's seemingly less sophisticated than intelligence, but one can imagine on the battle, battlefield what it would mean to desire to kill, to desire to hunt, to desire to find, to desire to reproduce, to desire not to die, to repair, um, how these things might change things fundamentally. And the last one is actually much more simple than desire, and it's my little pitch for thinking about those sort of biomimetics. Um, I, maybe we'll talk about it more in the Q&A, but the attempts to desire not single animals, um, but collectives of animals. So wolf packs, uh, bee swarms, thinking about how different components work together and create, in some sense, an emergent intelligence, which again, has to be highly automated, right? If bees thought things through themselves, it would go badly. Um, but what if we simply were able to model hunger? Um, I think that would be revolutionary. Last thing, the fundamentalist fallacy, or the, the rather the functionalist fallacy, that we'll only do things because they work, or uh, the sort of correlate the sort of fallacy of design, we'll only do those things which we decide to do. Um, and that's where I'll leave a couple of drivers and then I'll save the discussion of the relationship between machine and politics for, for Antoine and I's discussion. Um, a couple of drivers which I think will, will fundamentally alter um, the course of drone history. Um, I think COVID is something we're already seeing and it's sort of a backdoor to the conversation that I wanted to have uh, about the political and war and people. Um, which is that drones aren't just automating war, they're also experiencing an automation of labor. It's all labor is another way to put it. Um, and if it's all labor, uh, and increasingly we have reasons why we don't want people interacting with each other, or we don't want people uh, directly participating uh, in the acts that they are, uh, imagine for instance, not just giving this Zoom call, but needing to operate things via Zoom, um, mechanical devices, uh, we could, quite literally lose the kinds of capacities we have for direct encounter with decision-making. Uh, we could lose the capacities we have uh, for civil unrest. We could lose the capacities we have um, for direct action and, and other forms of protests that are somehow short war. So I think that's, that's one driver. It's, it's not just COVID as this particular instance, but the sort of constant disruption and necessity to rely increasingly on non-human forms of labor, uh, which could be highly disruptive. Um, the second one uh, is hypersonic weapons. Uh, I think as weapons become faster, um, the necessity to rely on increasing levels of automation will produce autonomy, uh, meaning that because the devices themselves will have to retarget, will have to move, will have to cope with very small changes in the atmosphere, um, those kinds of decisions and deployments will alter our necessity to rely on weapon systems that don't necessarily work, but for whom we have no other choice but to try it. Um, the last is that as miniaturization of drones happen more and more, as swarming of drones happen more and more, um, the only logical response will be more directed energy weapons, microwave weapons, electromagnetic pulses, lasers, all of which will drive the arms race in the opposite direction to make drones increasingly deaf and blind, uh, meaning that they'll have to rely on their own cognitive capacities increasingly 
because that will be the only way to create countermeasures uh, from destroying them or knocking them out of the sky. We think about that kind of environment, what we're looking towards a sort of increasing push towards automation broadly uh, and a disconnection from the state, an increasing speed of war, which uh, I think Antoine's done a great job detailing uh, in his own book, and a sort of necessity for drones um, to become less dependent on humans in the loop, uh, then I think we could see some futures which would be not exactly what we're expecting, but certainly different uh, from what we have now. And I'll leave it at that. You raised, Joseph, very interesting, is this question of what or who counts as a drone? And here I'll note, there's a kind of interesting tension here between this idea of, I mean, there's a kind of oxymoron in, or uh, uh, contradiction in terms rather between the idea with the idea of an autonomous drone. Because what we usually think of as a drone in common parlance is precisely the opposite of autonomy, is this unthinking and um, unfree or, or, or uh, merely through, going through rote motions. What counts as autonomy and, and who's a drone I think we'd be worth noting that autonomy within the military, if you think in historical terms, has always been very unevenly distributed. You know, the great tactical and strategic determinations of generals have typically rested on the automatic execution of orders by the mass of soldiers. That is what military discipline has, through the ages, generally required, that soldiers just execute orders, whether these orders are predetermined in advance, the Clockwork armies of Frederick the Great in the 18th century, or, or whether they are to you know, respond in a, or to respond to orders that flow through the battlefield as the battle go, goes on. But ultimately, the autonomy of the soldier has very often been extremely restricted. And in fact, autonomy as generally has been a compromise for many, for many militaries. It's something that had to be given to soldiers because distance or restrictions of bandwidth did not allow the timely transmission of orders. So that if there are developments on the battlefield and effectively you can't get input from the commanders, then soldiers have to take some decisions themselves. Um, so it's important to note that armies have always treated its human material uh, as cogs within larger social machines. I refer here to, to Lewis Mumford's ideas of the mega machines, these vast social machines where humans are basically substitutes for, for, for cogs in a, in a more literal machine. And, and a major driver from this perspective, a major driver of technological development has been the desire to remedy the fallibility of these human cogs. So, you know, whether it's more efficient, faster, cheaper to get a technical object or any kind of more sophisticated machine to do what a human can do is really one of the big questions, or one of the big drivers uh, of technology. But fundamentally, that doesn't really necessarily change the function of autonomy within the system or the, the relationship of subordinate parts to, to maybe the autonomous or more autonomous decision makers within that. So, you know, in talking about lethal autonomous weapon systems, we might fall prey of a kind of idealization of autonomy within the within the within the war machine that has always been a very partial and uneven property. No, I, I I totally agree. I mean, we were talking about this before that the the entire martial paradigm of training. The point is to to eliminate, in some sense, as much autonomy as possible. Uh, you know, I was also thinking the sort of increasing reliance after World War II and all the studies on the failure to pull trigger rates um, and the, the move to operator response techniques, right? So training soldiers not to aim first, but to fire first, right? So that more bullets would go onto the battlefield or the uses of techniques of behavioralism to, to alter training um, so that they no longer thought about themselves as shooting at a different person, right? The, 
different ways in which we've learned to process guilt, memory, um, whether or not it's pharmaceutically, it's through therapy. I mean, the, the entire apparatus of making war something sustainable um, as opposed to something traumatic and catastrophic uh, is, a, is a process of building human drones. Um, and I mean, part of the, the sort of dream in some sense, right, is of the, the sort of corporate soldier warrior who can, you know, have this time at war and then come home somehow and, and sort of start their life over uh, is one where the training could be turned on and turned off. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, I think that's also something that's important for getting out of the sort of drone essentialism box, right? The sort of shiny predator drone is, you know, from 1947 or eight, basically to the present, uh, the entire obsession with the brain by the US military, uh, whether or not it was John Lilly's research on how to hack dolphins and monkeys, how to build, you know, human machine interface technology or machine uh, animal interface technology. All of that was about how to modulate the relationship between autonomy and automation. And I mean, I think that's, that's actually something that goes all the way down to the, the sort of thinking and planning also at the sort of program level for the military. I mean, think about all the fights we've had over the last 20 years over more special forces, uh, more technological instead of special forces or the kind of soft counterinsurgency uh, revolution that we've had, and then that going back to kind of more air power, right? Those those conversations are really, right, this torsion between we want automated systems like air power, which we can measure very clearly and, and sort of tactically what the outcomes are versus uh, this sort of image of, you know, Green Berets and Rangers who can think for themselves or Navy SEALs uh, who can kind of adapt uh, to situations. And the drone seems more like uh, a synecdoche, right? I sort of stand in for that larger conversation about what a, what war is supposed to be, right? Is it supposed to be this sort of creative apparatus that adapts to the battlefield uh, and sort of creates constantly new uh, tactical innovation, or or is it, is it a control mechanism, right? Is it the capacity in some sense to constrain the level of force and use of force um, to have sort of gradual uh, escalation uh, and more authority at the top uh, and less autonomy at the bottom. Uh, and I think that gets to the core of the very nature of, of, of warfare. And I think a lot of, in some sense, paranoia about the drone, um, even more so than the drone itself. Not to say that the drone's a metaphor, because, you know, Antoine and I, we don't like metaphor. Um, I mean, I, I agree with the, you know, the tension here uh, that you underline, uh, which is, you know, on the one hand, the military has for some time, and there was a report by, published by DARPA, the R&D arm of the military in the US back in the early 2000s, that based bluntly stated, the weakest link is the human. Um, and you can see in lots of ways why the military might want to move the human out of uh, the picture for problems of indecision, uh, you know, inability to cope with perhaps a heightened speed in, in the battle space, just sheer cost as well. I mean, you think, you know, AI and so on, we, we, our mind boggles at some of the money that's spent on weapon systems, but soldiers are extremely expensive for contemporary militaries. You have to train them, you have to support them through the deployment, but especially now you have to take care of them uh, after, they, after they retire and often sometimes with uh, lifelong uh, injuries and conditions. And it's, all, you know, it's been remarked that, you know, the, the only really socialized medical care you get in the US 
uh, is uh, as a member of as a member of the military. So the displacement uh, of humans by uh, machines is is appealing in a number of ways. Obviously, for for the military. Also, we're talking just on the rebounding on what you're saying about desire. I mean, and the problem of the, the shooter problem is, you know, you have to create the desire or engineer the desire to kill, uh, which is can be quite a complicated uh, thing to do. Um, or at least, uh, uh, you know, an involved one, which you may not, obviously, is a problem that doesn't necessarily arise in the same fashion, at least uh, with machines. But parallel to this, we do live at a time where there is a, a greater emphasis than ever, I think, within the military on the role of creativity. And then move, movements such as the military design movement, uh, you know, emphasize create creativity, uh, and certainly, you know, even kinds of uh, heretical forms of, of, of creativity, uh, which are, you know, very much the kind of preserve for at this point uh, uh, of, of the human. Now, this and how this debate, of course, how much is creativity and even to some extent insubordination within the military should be allowed to percolate down within within the institution. Uh, but these trends are definitely happening concurrently. And some aspects of contemporary military deployment, such as special forces, seems to be the ones where you know the human will remain central for for a very long time, even though it will be continually integrated with other technologies. Whereas, you know, air, air power obviously is the cutting the you know the, the tip of the spear really for for automation and perhaps even autonomy within the military. So here's the question, though, you know, you know. There are moments where I, I think that's that's where everything's happening because that's where the most intellectually interesting debates and like the sort of weirdest parts of the military are. I mean, um, DARPA is interesting because it's weird, right? It's 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 seemingly creative, it's seemingly innovative. Um, and then I come back to you know the point that I was trying to make about nuclear weapons, which is like, can we really imagine caring that much about drones and the kind of limited capacities they could have if if we were really were in nuclear battlefields. I mean, I can imagine the value of a drone in the sense that, you know, humans uh, wouldn't be able to exist in those battlefields, but in terms of the kinds of scale, right? So the other thing about the drone, and, and I think about the obsession of the drone that could be quite dangerous, is it, it presumes a scale and management of warfare. It, there's no reason to suspect will necessarily take place. Uh, and so I think um, the, the question is not just what drones can do um, and could do if their future developed, they became highly intelligent. Um, but could we really imagine, for instance, this would be sort of my counterexample. Uh, let's say the United States really gets its, you know, third offset. Uh, and in fact, they skip ahead to the fourth offset. They have general AI uh, and they have the capacity for central computer um, to not just think tactically, but also strategically to innovate the ways in which it's fighting on the battlefield, but also the war aims themselves, right? That's sort of the vision, right? Something that could think sort of faster than its opponent. Um, and let's say it got that huge advantage over Russia or China. Um, and there was some kind of first move advantage to, to attacking. Do we, do we really think that Russia or China wouldn't just say, well, that AI looks really, really impressive and that's a lot of drones um i think we're going to use multiple re-entry vehicles with you know 10 20 megatons uh and just wipe it out right so like there's there's sort of a strange agreement right when we when we think about these sort of improvements of a certain kind of technology that they'll happen within the boundaries of certain kinds of thinkable warfare uh and so i i, I also kind of wonder too how much the drone 
is somewhat an aspirational weapon um, in the sense that for all those states who invest heavily in it, uh, it's also an attempt to invest heavily in small wars, right? Right, sort of manageable, low impact, very, very long-term wars. Um, and, and potentially, and I, I know this has come up in some of the other drone talks and will come up certainly in other drone talks, that the drone may have less to do with war and more to do with security. Um, that we may see it as a, a sort of revolutionary weapon, particularly its AI capacity, um, not in the fighting of adversaries, but in the maintenance of our own populations. Um, and I think we've already begun to see the sort of the bare bones beginnings of that in the United States, where, you know, the continual aftermath of slavery that never ends in this country, um, that was once managed by trained dogs, uh, and, you know, people wearing white hoods is now managed by the capacity to scan cell phones, to use drones for surveillance, um, to think about putting uh, dispersal weapons on drones like LRADs and microwave weapons, um, to manage borders. Um, that it's, it's, it really, you know, we, we like to think in terms of warfare, but I, I, I do think that um, the in quote unquote intelligent capacity of drones is really in its, its interface capacity, I think, with policing technologies even more so. Go. Brief, brief, briefly on that, I think that links back to what I was saying earlier on about uh, this idea of discrimination, uh, that you know, AI really comes to the fore and autonomy comes to the fore when it's not really about just launching as much indiscriminate force as possible. The temptation might be to think of that as, well, that's an evidence of our kind of higher normative standards of war today. But I think the other answer is precisely that uh, that, you, that you're getting at, which is really this is also part of the blurring between war and policing that we see in today's world, where, I mean, the nature of policing is that it has to be discriminate in some shape or form, because it's not about destruction, it's about governance, ultimately. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.